0: Welcome to
1: Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. And with the passing of Vince Scully this week, this is the perfect time to bring in one of my favorite Houston sports voices from back in the 70s and the 80s. He's also been the voice of the Boston Red Sox for about a decade and a half. Former voice of the Astros, the Rockets, the Oilers, Arrows, so great to have you back, Jerry. I know Vince passing hit you kind of hard, right?
2: Yeah. What, what, I mean, he was the best of the best. You know, when, when, when a giant like that passes, it, it brings back a flood of memories. It brings, back, it brings back, you know, the reality that we're just here a short time. Uh, and, and the amazing, you stop and think and analyze his career. So I said he was the best of the best. I didn't get to hear him when he started with with the Brooklyn Dodgers in what was it, 1950 or somewhere around there. He he was he was the voice of the Dodgers for 67 years, and as we see in the business, he never lost his fastball. He he was he obviously was better year 67 than he was at the start of year one, but he just he just grew and grew and became became the guy that everybody measures themselves against. Did
1: you cross paths with them much over the years and all your years calling the games?
2: Yeah. Well, being in the national league with the Astros and then the Expos and then some CBS work. And then when interleague play came around, uh, you know, the Red Sox would play the Dodgers and uh, they'd be out in LA or they would, they would come to Fenway. My favorite Vin story. And just this, to me, this encapsulates what kind of guy he was and you, as great a broadcaster as he was, and he was great, he was also a great human being. So I'm with the Astros my first year with them, spring training, went over to Vero Beach to have an exhibition game and broadcast an exhibition game, and I went to meet Vince Scully. I, I had been around him before as, when I was a producer at KTRH and, you know, behind the scenes, but I never had the chance to meet him or never had the courage to go up and introduce myself. I, I was... Believe it or not, I am an introvert in an extrovert's business. I'm probably not as introverted today as I was back then. So Vero Beach, I always heard about Vero Beach and Dodger Town and all this. So I came out of the dining area at, uh, at Dodger Town. And I'm, I'm walking down, if I remember correctly, it was three, like three or four concrete steps to come out of that facility and, and head over to the, to the broadcast booth of the playing field and, and the broadcast situation. Here comes Vince Scully, and I'm going to go introduce myself because now I'm a major league broadcaster. I'm nowhere in his league at all, but I'm going to introduce myself. And as I start walking up to him, I hear, Jerry, Vince Scully, so nice to meet you. He knew my name. He knew about me before I got to him. And he was he was so gracious, and he was just the same over the years, you know, from that from that first meeting, that first introduction to the the last time I saw him, which was a lot of years ago now.
1: Uh, I'm going to tell a little bit about my story with him. And uh, just a quick reminder before I do that, listeners uh, out there, please subscribe on YouTube. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us about your thoughts on Vin, if you've got a Vin story in the comments. But Jerry, my freshman year of college, I decided my goal and dream was to call baseball on the radio. And I'd listen to Vin call games and I literally took notes pen and paper and the whole thing listening to Ben, and nobody's going to copy that perfect melodic voice but I was determined to soak in and to deconstruct what I could from his storytelling and brilliant descriptive ability my dream never got as far as I wanted but Ben, you know he's always a hero to me because of you know what he represented you said as a person but you know of course you know his ability like so many who grew up Listening to Vin Jerry, he expanded my passion for baseball and sports in general. I kind of feel sorry for sports fans who weren't fortunate enough to be raised by Vin's voice. I mean, Jerry, I heard him because of the NBC Game of the Week. But if you weren't a Dodger fan and you're younger than about 37 or 38, you never got to hear him on a regular basis.
2: When the Dodgers first left Brooklyn and, and I believe the year was 1958, they went to Los Angeles before. Dodger Stadium was built in Chavez Ravine. They played at the old Los Angeles Sports Coliseum, which was built for the Olympics. The Rams played there. When when the Raiders moved to L.A., they played there. So it was a a multifaceted facility, but it was not made for baseball. They they used to construct left field, if I remember correctly, and I, I never worked a game there. I was in grade school back then. They constructed a—I forget how tall it was—a a screen in left field. It was 280 feet down the line, and Wally Moon, who was a left-handed hitter, became much a much better hitter when he went to the Dodgers from the Cardinals because he he had that ability to hit the ball the other way. So he would hit a number of home runs, and they used to call those moonshots over that over that facility, and, and, and or that por- portion of the facility in left field, but. Vin Scully was so popular and it, and it carried through to, to Dodger stadium that they would, they would ask the fans seated in front of the broadcast positions behind home plate to please turn down your transistor radios because they were getting so much feedback in, into Vince Scully's booth. And I, I talked to a, a friend today, a former broadcast executive who said, yeah, I, I worked in LA during that time. And he spent, by this time, they were in Dodger Stadium. He said, "You could walk anywhere in that ballpark, and it was like they they had monitors all over." No, it was people with their radios listening to Vince Scully. Of course, now now people have the the the, the headsets and the, the iPod uh, little danglies from the ears and what have you, so you could make it a little more private. Back in the back in those days with the with the transistor radio. He 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 was so popular that people didn't want to miss his broadcast, even though they were attending the game.
1: Yeah, I got a story speaking straight to that, because I've attended one Dodger game. This is back in 1996. Same thing. The radios were everywhere. You could hear Vin. And I spoke to a woman next to me at the game about it, and she said, and I'm going to quote her, she said, I can't go to the game without Vin. It's just not the same without him.
2: I mean, he, the man's a legend. And to his credit, I said earlier, he never lost his fastball. He 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 kept his he kept his ability throughout his career, but he kept his humility throughout his life, which which speaks volumes about him as well. And and you, you talk about people try, and I've heard this in the broadcast industry. People tried to copy his style. You can't. He was such a wordsmith. He was he was so fluent with the language. His his vocabulary, his language skills were, were second to none. And, and he had that innate ability to capture the, the right words at the right moment. We all as broadcasters have had our moments where, where things have come, have come into place and fallen together. Um, I won't mention his name, but there is a broadcaster who's still working and was doing a national broadcast. And at a key moment, a historic moment in in the sport of baseball, had what he was going to say written down on a card. Well, you as a as a broadcaster, you know when you're doing a broadcast, you have your notes. You have in baseball your scorecard, or in football your spotting boards. You have materials in front of you. You have you might have a, a commercial drop in to read, or you have press notes. So it it gets to be a little scattered space. Well, the moment came, and he blew the call because he couldn't find the card he was going to use at that moment. When if the big moment came, big moment came, he didn't have his card. Then Scully, the great ones, the good ones. Let it be organic. Let 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 your words through your experience, through through your knowledge of the game carry you. Don't sit sit there and try to have something written down because it doesn't work.
1: Yeah. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about his descriptive power and, and why he was such a good storyteller. Cause I have a story that kind of speaks to that, but you know, to call him a, a baseball broadcaster or a sports broadcaster, it, it feels inadequate. He was a poet as heartfelt as Robert Frost, a historian, the likes of David McCullough, a storyteller as vivid as Shakespeare and an artist as brilliant and vibrant as Van Gogh. I mean, not only is he the best baseball broadcaster who ever lived, it just feels like the gap between him and second is bigger than the grand Canyon. And Jerry, the story that I think when I talk about listening to him and taking notes, he was calling the world series back in the early to mid nineties Braves in the world series. Mark Lemke's at the plate. And I hear Vin say, this is on the radio. He says, Mark Lemke became a became a switch hitter because of a childhood fear. And right there, he just wrote a headline for you and you're like, what, what's he talking about? What does that mean? And he, you know, it's beautifully set up as Lemke stepping into the plate. And he says when Lemke was, I don't know, six, seven years old, he would play in this field in this lot with his buddies. They would play baseball and Lemke Hit right-handed, and if you hit it over this fence, it went into a psychiatric ward. And all the kids were afraid to go get the baseballs out of the psychiatric, so they kept losing the baseballs. And Lemke's like, well, I, I, I can't, we can't keep losing baseballs, so I guess I'm going to have to hit from the other side of the plate. I mean, it, it's storytelling. And, Jerry, I, I did American Legion baseball as a, as a college student, um, just a little internship that I did. And American Legion baseball, as you know, not the easiest thing to make interesting. And so after hearing that story, I asked uh, one of the coaches whose son was a lefty pitcher. And I said, oh, was he always a lefty? You know, what's the story behind that? And he goes, yeah, he he was always a lefty. But he said, when my first son was born, he was a righty and I wanted him to be a lefty. So I used to tie his right arm down. And mom didn't like it too much, so she put the stop to that. <laughs> but yeah, I said, Oh, that's great. And I I would not have thought to ask the question if I didn't listen to what Vin did and sort of deconstruct his storytelling. If you
2: if you want to find a, a great example of how how broadcasts are different on radio and television. If you could find the documentary that they did about the top 50 calls in the history of Major League Baseball, uh, number one is the Russ Hodges, the Dodgers, or the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, the Bobby Thompson home run, the shot heard around the world. But number two is Jack Buck calling the uh, home run by Kirk Gibson in, in the World Series to beat Oakland in 1991. Or was it 91 or no 80 was it 88 89? 88 88 no i thought 88 was the was that the dodgers
1: oh that's the anyway. kirk, that, that's the kirk gibson dodgers home run is the, the 88 series
2: okay so in so in 88 yeah jack's doing the world series with bill white then is is on television doing it and the difference in the two calls both both great broadcasters both great men and Jack's description had to be a little more, a little more, not not dramatic, but a little more expanded because it's on radio. Whereas Vin, both made great calls, but was more more suited for the television audience. Both were shocked by the moment. By the way, it was was such a surprise. But that's a that's a great lesson for broadcasters: the the, the difference between how you deliver a sport on radio. As opposed to what you you do on television. On television, your play-by-play job is is to provide captions for pictures. On radio, you have to paint that picture.
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk about the Gibson home run because uh, the the full call that whole at bat, which I've rewatched again and again because it's just an incredible job by both him and Joe Garagiola on that at bat, but. Yeah, you talk about, you know, Vin did the she is gone and the gone, the way he punctuated it and and just the sound in his voice. It was the inflection that it was like uh, of amazement. And like, did this really happen? And he put it all in that gone. But if you go back, what I really loved about that at bat was Gibson. He fouls off a pitch. It's a number just outside the first baseline. Gibson tries to hobble down to first base. Vin says, it's one thing to favor one leg, but you can't favor two. And if you remember, Gibson's like, as, as both legs are all screwed up. So that was just a brilliant way to say it as he's hobbling down to first base. But then later in the at-bat, after another foul ball, he said, Gibson shaking his left leg, making it quiver like a horse trying to get rid of some troublesome fly. I mean, who else could come up with these descriptions, yeah. Jerry? It's it was like a great author who would write first drafts in pen to be immediately published.
2: But that that at bat also. Gibson is there because of Vince Scully. Vin mentioning Gibson was in the clubhouse, yeah. not expected to play, and he got cheesed off because Ben said that he's likely not available for that. And with that. If you know anything about Kirk Gibson, he, uh, he was as, as tough a competitor as ever, a former football player. So he, he got mad. He, he, he told the, the clubhouse kid, tell Tommy I'm coming if he needs an at bat. And he did, but also about that at bat, which I loved. No queen was the advanced scout, the former major league pitcher of the advanced scout for the Dodgers. And my friend Dennis Eckersley is on the mound uh pitching for Oakland and he loved the backdoor slider. So he knew with two strikes because of the hitters meeting they had with Mel Queen's scouting report that, that Eck loved the backdoor slider on a hitter who had two strikes against the left-handed batter, a backdoor slider. So if you if you go back and look, Gibson steps out and he says to himself, his exact quote was, Okay, partner, here comes that backdoor slider. That's when That's when he was ready for it and hit the the pitch out for that dramatic home run. And it's great that guys like Scully and guys like Buck, who had been there for a very long time, had done thousands of games, had seen just about everything in the game, could still capture and be enraptured by something as dramatic, as unexpected as that Gibson home run.
1: Yeah, and I'm 51. It's still the most incredible, you know, moment in 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 all of baseball that that I've seen was that Gibson home run. And you know, there's been a ton of them over the years. I, I'll connect us all to the Astros a little bit because maybe the best Astros story with Vin is the day he broadcast 23 innings in two different cities. Older Astros fans they'll remember this. There's a game between the Astros and Dodgers, June 3rd, 1989. It goes 22 innings. That day, Vin called the NBC game of the week in St. Louis, where the Cards beat the Cubs in ten innings. Scully flies here so he could call the game Sunday, but went straight to the Astrodome because he heard the game on. When he gets to Houston, and instead of the hotel, he's 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 at the state. You know, he's at the dome. He relieves the other Dodgers announcers. Are both doing? You know, they had to basically do television and radio themselves, and then he broadcasts the final thirteen innings. That's how you broadcast 23 innings in one day in two different cities. Oh, and Jerry, the best part, the Astros won the game, which, you know, got to talk about that. And then they also won the following afternoon in 13 innings. So Vin had to do 13 the next day. And yours truly was in attendance for that game on uh, Sunday, the 13-inning game.
2: My, my extra inning association with Vin is the longest one-to-nothing game in the history of Major League Baseball. That, too, was 22 innings. It was it was the Dodgers at Montreal. Bin's doing TV for the Dodgers. Dave Van Horn's doing radio. I'm sorry, Dave Van Horn's doing TV for the Expos. Two Hall of Famers, by the way. I'm doing radio for the Expos. Rick Dempsey hits an opposite field home run in the top of the 22nd off Dennis Martinez in relief. And I think Dennis was in like his sixth or seventh inning of relief, a starting pitcher, who later pitched a perfect game against the Dodgers, by the way. Dempsey hits the home run off of uh, off of uh, Martinez, and, and the Dodgers win one to nothing. That was the game that the uh, mascot for the Expos, Yuppie, got kicked out by the plate umpire because Tommy Lasorda had fallen asleep in the dugout, and, and Yuppie <laughs> was jumping on top of the dugout wearing pajamas. And the the sort of put up such a stink, he got the plate umpire to kick Yuppie out of the game. So he he had to exit it. It The the Dodgers actually scored a run in the 15th inning, which the umpires missed. They called a ball trapped by QB Brooks, the right fielder for the Expos. They called that a catch. It was trapped. That would have won it for the Dodgers in the 15th. But it went to the 22nd inning, and Dempsey hits the extra inning home run. But that was the longest game by innings, 22 innings for a one nothing final in major league history. That was a long night. I got home in the wee hours of the morning that night.
1: (laughs) I got one more Astros related story because it involves one of our former guests, Mike Acosta. And it was something that I saw him post to social media. He's the Astros historian and authentication manager. And he said, Vin was in Houston for the Astrodome's final regular season game. Early that morning, he entered a nearly empty media dining room and chose to sit with an Astros broadcast intern for breakfast. Mike Acosta said, it was the best bacon and eggs I ever had.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't be around Vin and, and, and not, not learn something, not enjoy the time, not relish being in the shadow of a great man and a great broadcaster. And Vin would probably be upset if we said we were in his shadow, he was such a, a, a low-key human being. I, I got a, a note from a friend of mine that then set up Catholic masses for the Dodgers at the ballpark on the road and also at home. And he would serve as, as the lector uh, during those masses. He kept his faith throughout the years. I don't know if many people knew this, that his first wife died, I believe, of a brain aneurysm. I don't know how many years into their marriage. He remarried. And and before he before he retired from the Dodgers, she his second wife, uh, I believe, had had uh, passed away. Yes, his wife Sandy, I believe, had passed away. So you know he he didn't have the easiest life, but you would never know it when he got behind that microphone. And I don't know many many people of this generation know that. Sure, sure, you could find it on YouTube he did football and golf for CBS, but he also had. I don't know if we would call it a variety show. I guess we would on NBC, a morning variety show on NBC. And I wish I could find some video of that because he is such a great interviewer, such a such great personality. I teach several broadcast classes uh, for a couple of colleges. And I I use been talking about preparation. I want to talk about that for a minute. Sixty seven years, voice of the Dodgers. And and considered for a long, long time, well into those years that he was considered to, to be the best of the best. But he never stopped. He never stopped preparing. He prepared in his 67th year as he would have done in his 15th year or his fifth year when you're all excited. Your, your first year, you're so excited as a broadcaster. My first year with the Astros, on an off day, I drove across Florida four hours to see my friends Jack Buck and Mike Shannon, uh, because I'm now now I'm a, a broadcaster. But listen, year two as a broadcaster, you don't do that. You you don't do that, and and get to get to year nineteen or twenty as a broadcaster, you're not driving across Florida to see it. But you'll you'll see them when you see them. You don't lose your enthusiasm for the game, but you know you know the game is dictated by the by the schedule by the calendar you know you're going to have your opportunity to see those folks
1: let's uh switch gears for a little bit because this past week we also lost NBA icon Bill Russell and I'd like your perspective because you grew up in the Russell era you lived in the Boston area you've been there what for nearly 3 decades now
2: yeah, yeah about 3 decades yeah Bill Russell was the ultimate winner. If memory serves, he won two championships in college at the University of San Francisco, won 11 titles with the Celtics, was a civil rights leader. Uh, to my way of thinking, and, and maybe maybe somebody out there can prove me wrong, we talk about rivalries. We, we Back in the day, the Oilers and the Steelers or Texas, Texas A&M. Uh, the Dodgers, Giants, Cardinals, Cubs, Red Sox, Yankees. To me, Ali and Frazier. To me, the first rivalry that I can think of—and I may be wrong—but the first ones I one I can think of, Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. Those battles were epic. They were epic, and Russell was six eight. Wilt was what seven two, seven three, and and usually, usually Russell would come out. On the, on the upper end of it, the better end of it. And he was a guy, he could he could have scored 20, 25, 27 points a game, but he knew in their system with the Celtics that Red Auerbach wanted him for his defense, his rebounding and his defense and, out, and his outlet passes. So he was not the prolific scorer a Will Chamberlain was, or later on that a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or a, a Kakeem Olajuwon became. His thing was defense. And it helped win a lot of championships for the uh, for the Boston Celtics. Never got to meet him. Never got to meet him, uh, and, and I'm I'm sad about that. I would have liked to have met him and had some time to speak with him. He was a broadcaster. He was a he was a head coach. He was a winner.
1: Jerry, as you well know, the St. Louis Hawks won the NBA title in 1958 against Russell Celtics. Bob Pettit closed out the series with 50 points in Game Six. I heard Bill Simmons on his podcast telling the story about visiting Russell at his house. And he said one of the things he asked him about was that series. And Simmons knew that Russell had hurt his ankle. And he said, hey, Bill, I know you were playing on one leg in that game, right? Did Russell play or was he out? Oh, he played. He said, oh, there's no way he puts 50 up on me if I'm right. No way. And Russell, despite 11 rings, was still angry about losing that series.
2: Sorry, Mr. Russell. I'm from St. Louis, so it was okay with me.
1: (laughs) And the thing that really sticks out, Jerry, when I was reading about the Russell stuff uh, after he passed away was, you know, there was a really great piece of an article about everything that he went through, the racism in Boston and what they did to his house and in front of his house and throwing trash and all this stuff and you know I always got this you know I always got this vibe from Russell you know not having watched him play my my memories of him are just kind of he wasn't super happy and he seemed kind of angry at at times you know they said he had a great laugh and a great sense of humor but that's the kind of vibe that you got off of Bill Russell and it's only now when you start realizing oh he had a right to be angry he had a right
2: yeah, those were different times. And certainly he went through tough times. Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, at that time, Cassius Clay, went through tough times. I heard a story about Cassius Clay. I, I remember that then Cassius Clay, as a 19-year-old, being interviewed by Jack Buck on KMOX Radio as an up-and-coming boxer, had not gotten to the Olympics yet. Um, and And Ali goes on the Olympics in Rome, wins the gold medal, comes back to his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, could not get served at a, at a lunch counter. And the story goes, he took his Olympic gold medal, he threw it in the river. Did you know before Ali died, they they, they had an annual cleanup of that river outside of Louisville. And, and pardon my lack of geography knowledge here, it's been a while since I've been in school, i had other things on my mind. But in 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 dredging that river they found his gold medal and returned it to him before he died which i think is a great story because he he became such you know he was he was scorned by everybody for his stance on the war and 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 you know as it turned out a lot of people eventually agreed with him he became a humanitarian he became a civil rights leader and I'm I'm glad that he was able to to reconnect with that with that gold medal uh, as he represented the country and 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 he helped the country become and hey look we're not perfect and I'm not going to get political here but he, he helped America become closer to what he had idealed it to be than it was when he was a young, a young man.
1: Do you think they should retire Russell's number in the NBA?
2: It, it, uh, yeah, is number six. Sure.
1: Yeah. Same, same as Jackie Robinson. He was, uh, a, be he was asked to be a pallbearer by Rachel Robinson at Jackie's funeral, which he was, which, you know, tells you everything you need to know about the respect Russell had, you know, by that community, by everybody at, at, at that period of time. Uh, and, and the gold medal story where he throws it in the river. Oh, it just, it's, it's stuff of legend. Uh, love Ali go listen to all everybody out there find my interview with Mickey Herskowitz on our YouTube site it's great interview when Ali passed away I did 20 minutes and Mickey Herskowitz just tells one incredible story after another about Muhammad Ali
2: I got to meet Ali I got to know uh, Angelo Dundee a little bit and uh, this is back in the Houston Arrows days he was gonna he was fu- preparing to fight Chuck Webner. so as it turned out, we the, the Arrows were in a playoff series in Cleveland and the fight was going to take place in Cleveland so we're staying in the same hotel as Ali and his entourage I'm having dinner with Larry Lund one of the one of the Arrows players in the hotel restaurant and we're we're seated at a table and across the way is Ali and his entourage and I, he had the biggest piece of prime rib I've ever seen in my life <laughs> now another Arrows player comes in uh, by the name of Glenn Irwin, who was one of the tough guys on the Arrows. And there was a partition in the restaurant. And, and Irwin is behind this p- partition, obviously trying to get a look at Ali. At LA. So Larry, Lund and I leave the restaurant after dinner. And Larry's going to go to the bar. I'm going to go back up to my room upstairs. But I stop with him in the bar for a second. And there's about 10, 10 of the Arrows players in the bar. And among them is Glenn Irwin. I got a lot of bad habits from hockey players. The hockey players are the best guys to deal with, but I learned how to play practical jokes. And I say, I got a lot of bad habits. It's how to pull a practical joke. So as I said, I got to know Angelo Dundee a little bit. He set up an interview. I got to meet Ali and, and do an interview with him, which in all the moves we've made across North America, I've lost that interview and it, and it kills me. It was, it was nine minutes to me of pure gold visiting with him. So anyway, in those days, the Marriott hotels where we stayed had game rooms. Ali is in there playing pinball. Dundee is in there. Bundini Brown and a couple of other guys are in there. So I, uh, Angelo waves at me and I say, hi, stop in. I said, Angelo, I know one of our players would love to meet the champ. Would, would he mind if I brought a guy in to uh, introduce him to us? Him? Yeah, I'll bring him in. So I go back to the bar. And again, there's about 10 guys there among them, Glenn Irwin. And, and, you know, Glenn turns away and I gave a wink to one of the players. I said, Hey, Glenn, and the guys had known that I was hanging around a little bit with Dundee for a couple of games or or a couple of days, I'm sorry. And I said, Hey, Glenn, I, I told, I told the, the champ about you and how good a fighter you are, but he called you a chump. He says, no hockey player can be a fighter. And he says, I can get out of it. He says, he called you a chump and he wants to meet you. I know, I know. And the guys are now egging him on because they know something's up. So here the eleven of us are going back down to that, to that uh game room where the pinball machine is. I walk in and then Irwin's behind me. And as I walk in, uh uh, and I didn't set this up other than to say I wanted to introduce him and, and, and uh, bug uh, Irwin to see what he's going to be like when he had it. But Dundee says to Ali, he says, hey, champ, here's that hockey player. Ali turns around. I couldn't have scripted it ever, any better. He throws a combination and, and just comes up a hair short of, of Irwin's chin. And, and Glenn backs up against the wall and Ali hits him on the shoulder and goes, nice meeting you, kid and walks out. couldn't have drawn it up any better. <laughs> and the guy the guys were loving it and they were they, they were play hey, what are you back up for? You're a tough guy. Come on. It, it was it was a beautiful thing.
1: Oh my god, his stories are incredible. Uh before we say goodbye, your website, your new website, sportsmike.com I love it. Uh you've got the old clips of you know, U of H Cougar basketball, the old WHL, uh the World Hockey League, Houston Arrows, my beloved Oilers. Uh, anything else that I'm missing on there? Is some, some my, favorite, stuff. my favorite,
2: my and, favorite, and and today is my late mother's birthday. She would have been 98 years old. It's funny. We're, we're talking about this and you asked that question. My favorite, I put a bunch of pictures in there as well. There is a picture of Scipio Spinks, a former major league pitcher with the Cardinals, who later became a terrific major league scout, including with the Astros, but they let him go because... You know, in this woke age, we can't have scouts watching baseball games for heaven's sakes. We've got computers. We can figure this all out. Another story for another time. But there's a picture of Scipio Spinks in the press box. He's there because he has a broken leg. He's on second base after getting a, a base hit and advancing. Somebody gets a base hit. He's trying to score against the Cincinnati Reds. And he he has the audacity to try to bang into Johnny Bench. And it didn't turn out too good for Scipio. It broke his leg. So he is in the press box, you can see him in this old picture from the St Louis Post dispatch. He's sitting there watching. You see a close up of him with his he's got one of his crutches there, but in the distance, two booths over is a young wannabe broadcaster, which is me. I don't know how my mother found that picture, but there I am in the booth Jack Buck used to get me into with a voice and music tape recorder, which weighed I thought about twenty pounds or so The, the puppy was so hot heavy now you can do a broadcast with this thing either radio or television and i i would do a number of games every year and jack would critique them and also my football so i was so lucky in in uh, in that regard but the rest of that story is advanced a number of years later 2004 from that exact booth i broadcast the world series again this is bush stadium in st louis i I broadcast the World Series. In 2004, when the Red Sox finally snapped the, the Curse of the Bambino and beat the Cardinals in the World Series. Got me a World Series ring. But that, that booth and that that picture means a lot to me.
1: Yeah, that's a cool story. I, I want to say goodbye to you, Jerry, but I, I want to give a, our fans here a little bonus couple of clips I have on Vin Scully to close out this tribute. The second clip you're going to hear is from a conversation I had with the original voice of the televised Game of the Week, Buddy Blattner. I interviewed Blatner 28 years ago, 15 years Is he years still
2: alive, by the way?
1: No, he died He died 15 Uh-oh. years ago of cancer. So he's been gone for a while. So we're going to reach into the vault. He was also the original voice of the Angels and the Royals and an incredible career. And St. Louis you'll hear, Hawks basketball. Yeah, that, that, that as well. And you're, you're going to hear we were talking about the art of calling baseball games. He brings up Ben Scully. The first clip you're going to hear is from Houstonian and former Houston buff, Larry Miggins, former St. Louis Cardinal. Now, what does Miggins have to do with Scully? Well, if the last video, the last video, Vin posted on Twitter, he told the story of his most personal call in his entire 67-year Dodger career. In 1952, he called his high school classmate Larry Miggins' first major league home run a few years ago. I went to Larry's house, who's now the third oldest living ball player. And this is Larry telling me his version of the story from his Houston living room. Great to have you with us, Larry. And you're now a longtime Houstonian, but you grew up in the Bronx, New York, and you were the valedictorian at Fordham Prep. One of your high school classmates at Fordham Prep was Vince Scully. You and him both had big dreams at that time. Tell us that story.
3: Well, we had an assembly when I was a... Senior at Ford and Prep. All the school got together in the assembly hall, and he was sitting right behind me. So anyway, he put his arms on my shoulder, and he said, Larry, someday you're going to be in the big leagues. And the first time you hit a home run, I'll be the announcer and tell the world about it. Well, I laughed about it, and I never thought of it much after that. But sure enough, 1952, this is nine years later, I was playing for the St. Louis club, wasn't playing regular, how could I? When I had two Hall of Famers playing the two outfield posts, there's only one spot open, and everybody in the, in the in the organization was vying for that one spot. So I played a little bit, uh, and uh, but I got up against Preacher Roe. I think Eddie Sankey, the manager, figured this is big as his hometown. He must have all his friends and relatives. There. He'd be up for this game. Let me put him in and see what happens. So he put me in, and sure enough, I hit one. I think it was the second time up against Preacher over the man on. Scully only had one or two innings to broadcast for Red Barber in those days because it was just starting out. But he had that inning, and he talked about this story and related it to all the people in New York. And I heard about it from other people. It was great.
0: Of all the announcers that I have heard, and uh, I'm a good friend of his... Vince Scully produces a game better than anybody else. And I'll tell you why. Now the announcers have just reams of statistic at their fingertips. They're given that by the PR men. He has all these stats. But until they become meaningful, he will not use them. He will use them in a story that is meaningful. And uh, he doesn't say coming to bat... Uh, here comes Robert, and uh, uh, he's hitting 345 with 15 doubles and triples, the next number of home runs and RBIs, and uh, he's hitting 372 in the daytime against 245 at night, and against Chicago he's hitting 312 in 12 games, and against this pitcher he has one hit in 12 times at bat. Scully won't do that. It may get down to the fifth inning, and and the, and uh, you strike out, and Scully will say, you know that. That is the, the 15th straight time that he's been retired by this particular pitcher and has struck him out seven times. That becomes a little story. It's meaningful. And uh, uh, he has that discipline to be able to do that. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.
1: Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, The Google Podcast app or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.